Okay, everyone. Good to see each of you here this evening. We want to welcome those who are viewing by live stream. As always, let me say to the live stream audience, uh, we see live stream for Bureau Bible Fellowship as a supplement, not a substitute. So if you can come to church, we, we would like for you to join with us. If you are unable to, or maybe you're out of town, maybe you're sick, maybe you're concerned with the COVID still, then we understand staying home. But uh, ultimately, our goal is to get everyone together as the body of Christ so we can practice the one another's and be in fellowship. That's what, that's what God wants for us, right? Hey, did you have a good time Sunday? We, wasn't it wonderful to be back at Storm Grove Middle School? We had a great service, and we're going to continue there this weekend. Come ready, and, and we'll continue in our study on the Gospel of Matthew. But tonight, we are focused on Revelation. So take your Bibles out, turn to chapter 11, and let me begin with prayer. Father, tonight as we start this study, we, we recognize that uh, anything that works, anything that is good, anything that is effective that comes out of tonight's uh, teaching and out of our time of study uh, has to be from you. It cannot be from man. Uh, no one is able to save another person. Only the work of God can do that. And so as humble vessels, broken, shattered, splintered, crushed, that you have rebuilt by the work of your spirit, we, we humbly come tonight and ask that you would just really uh, in, enlighten our hearts, inspire us, encourage us, comfort us, correct us, rebuke us if necessary. Lord, let the work of the spirit be real and be done tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Revelation chapter 11, we're going to pick up at verse 3. Last week we covered verses 1 through 4, but we're going to go back to 3 because last week our study was on a different focus. Tonight we are actually looking at the ministry of the two witnesses, and we will probably work all the way through chapter 11 tonight, okay? By the way, would it be helpful to you guys, uh, just to let you know, you can go online and purchase... The same little uh, Bible study notebook that has the scripture on one side and the blank page on the other the, that we have for Matthew's gospel, you can also go online and purchase that if you'd like for the Revelation study. They have them for the book of Revelation, just so that you know that. I don't know if that interests any of you, just throwing it out to you, okay? Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, it starts, "...and I will grant authority to my two witnesses." And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, this is, this is John who's receiving instruction and receiving visions as he is now caught up in heaven. And so this is what's being shared with him. These are the two olive trees, verse 4, and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, speaking of the the two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, this is very unique. 
this, this dispensation that God's giving these two witnesses, that they are going to have a, a, a power that's endued by God Himself. And God's giving them the liberty to walk in this power and these supernatural interventions of God as often as they need it for a period of time. These, these are two interesting characters in the tribulation period that are, that are these two witnesses. We see here that they carry a prophetic ministry. They preach the gospel. They demonstrate repentance, which is absolutely part of the characteristic of a prophet. Uh, they, it says they're clothed in sackcloth. Their ministry is effective because they have been given authority. In other words, they're being led by the Spirit of the living God. They are, they are endued by God to come and perform acts of wonder, miracles, signs. They can do this stuff because God's enduing them with power to do it. And, and this power given by God allows them to witness for 1,260 days without interruption. Think about that. So this, we're talking about a period of time where it's increasingly difficult to share the gospel without, without getting some reverb or without getting uh, in some way persecuted. And whatever it is now on the earth, and by the way, it is real. I just got an uh, uh, email, Scott and I and the other elders received an email from Marshall Pennell, who did an interview today uh, uh, with a pastor or a leader in India, and the leader shared with him in the interview that recently eight pastors have been killed in India for sharing the gospel. And so that's in our day. As we get closer to the end, it's going to increase, not decrease. The earth's not getting better. It's getting worse. And, and so these men are given uh, this power of God to testify in the name of the Lord, and people will not be able to persecute them. People will not be able to come against them with any kind of effectiveness. For 1,260 days, they're going to be uninterrupted in their message to the world. Very unique ministry here. And that's, this is the ministry of a prophet. These, these men are coming. These witnesses are coming before the Lord shows up. These men are preparing the way for the Lord. Where does that sound familiar? John the Baptist, who was a prophet. He's the last of the prophets. And, and interestingly... Uh, these men, in spite of the antagonism that they face, I'm sure every day, uh, it's not going to have an effect. And interestingly, this ministry of sharing this testimony is in keeping with repentance. The sackcloth that they wear, that, that is a sign of repentance. Okay, so these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So these two men are the olive trees, and the lamp, they're the lampstands, okay? The ability of these two witnesses to call down fire from heaven, to consume their enemies. Uh, you find this, this whole imagery 
is coming out of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. The two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. Zechariah saw this vision, okay? Zechariah was a priest, He's one of the, and one of his jobs as a priest was to fill the little cups uh, for the oil in the lamp stand that stood in the holy place of the temple. This was like the menorah today, and this seven-armed lampstand that Moses had constructed, he would fill it every day. Think about the monotony of that. It had to be filled exactly the same way. God gave very distinct instructions of what to do, how to do it, that the, the lamps, the, the stands would be filled every day. And uh, they would burn. They would, this was a perpetual light symbolizing the light of God, the, 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 the presence of God. The, the, those lights were not, those candles were not allowed to go out. You could not run out of oil. They kept the oil in the candle uh, stands, okay? And, and they burned in the holy place which would be a, right outside the Holy of Holies. And so it was the duty of the priest to keep these things constantly filled with oil. But as you can imagine, when you do the same thing every day over and over and over and over, it becomes monotonous. And so God comes to Zechariah, and he brings him this, this, this vision or this this idea that he puts into him. And, and so uh, you have the vision that was, he saw these two olive trees, and there were pipes, so to speak. Somehow these candles, these, these candles are being, are being sourced with oil from the two olive trees. And you can't just take olive oil and get it to burn necessarily. That's not, this was a, God even told them how to manufacture the oil in such a way that it would burn. But, but the picture, this vision, is a vision of these two lampstands and these two olive trees, and it's sourcing the, olive tr the, uh, the lampstands. And he's saying that's the work of the Holy Spirit. In the believer's life, for us, forget about the two witnesses for a moment, the only way that we are able to go forward in effective ministry for Christ, whether we're talking about being a living witness by our actions and behavior, whether we're talking about opening our mouth and sharing a testimony, whether we're talking about uh, being effective in ministering to the needs of other people, whether we're talking about working out of our gifting that the Holy Spirit has given us, whatever you're talking about regarding ministry of God, the only way that you and I are able to perform that ministry is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. He is the source of the power, of the insight, of the discernment, of the strength that you have in God. No Christian has ever been able to minister effectively for God without the Holy Spirit doing it. That's why none of us should ever take credit for what, if God uses us, and something good happens, listen, you, I've, how many times have I said this over the years? If anything good comes out of our church or comes out of your life, your ministry, God gets all the glory. Not some of it. You don't share it with Him. He's a jealous God. 
He gets all the glory. Anything bad that comes out of the church or out of your ministry is you. There's never been a time when what God's done is bad. The Bible says he's a good God. And everything that comes out of you that's effective and that works is God. Everything that comes out of you that falls apart, that fails, that's you and I doing it. Never has there been a time where the Spirit of God has failed, where, where God has somehow fallen short in delivering what He wants done. Now listen to me. I want to be careful here. There are times where in the sovereignty of God, in the determination of God, that he will use a vessel, and that vessel will go for a period of time where there's no, no effect, no result. You think about William Carey in India. Seven years, a missionary in India never saw a convert. Never, in seven years. And you'd say, oh, well, see, he was functioning out of the flesh. No, God was laying the groundwork. He stayed faithful. And today, if you travel to India and you mention William Carey, he is the great missionary to India, known by the Christians in that country. Look, it's not about you being effective in what you think effectiveness looks like. It's being effective in God's sovereignty. Amen. God knows what is effective and what's not. Amen? Amen. So, but, but it's, this, these, these olive trees are feeding the candles. The Holy Spirit is the source, okay? Not us, not you and I. So it was the duty of the priest to keep these, these candles continually filled with oil. But Zechariah learned that really it's God who's doing the filling. And all he needs from Zechariah is obedience. Just be faithful. Yeah, it might get monotonous to you, but God's at work. And there are times in your life where you just feel like, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to be faithful, trying to stick to it. I get up and I read my Bible and whatever. Well, ask the Holy Spirit to give you insight in the Word. Get up, read the Scripture. You don't know down the road how God is going to use what you read that day down the road to minister to someone else. So it's not about you getting results on your timetable. For that to happen would mean that God is your servant and you're the master. But it's the other way around. It happens on God's timetable. We just remain faithful to Him. Amen? Okay. So this is very interesting. This is good stuff, man, uh, what we learn here. In fact, the word of the Lord in Zechariah 4, 6, the word of the Lord to Zechariah was, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, that's Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You ought to write that down somewhere. You know, we got, we got a neat little sign that's at the church office. We've got two calendars, big long calendars. They're not quite as long as this little wall. They probably come to about right here, from there to here. But it's, it's this year and it's next year. We had two calendars up. But above those two calendars, we've got a little sign, and it says, the Lord willing. I don't care what we put on that calendar. Nothing on that calendar is in stone. All of it is if the Lord wills. That's how you and I ought to get up every day, living our life. I want the Lord's will to be done. Amen? So, 
the oil being a symbol of the Spirit, and that is where the strength comes from that these two witnesses are going to walk in. The power supplied by the Spirit, and that continually supplies what we need in our lives as well today. So these are the two olive trees. These two witnesses are the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. One last thing to say about these two, well, actually, the whole evening's about the two witnesses, but there's something else along this line. I want to go back for a second and talk about what they're wearing, sackcloth, okay? It says that they, they, they're clothed in sackcloth, which is a rough, uh, uncomfortable garment. And what's interesting about these two witnesses clothed in sackcloth is that's the, that's the garment of the latter prophets. They, too, wore sackcloth. Or they, uh, even going in the New Testament, John the Baptist, what was he clothed in? I'm sorry? Say Camel hair. Yeah. Camel hair. Think about how uncomfortable. These guys wore clothing that was extremely uncomfortable. Why? What's behind that? Well, we don't know for sure. But we can probably follow many good theologians who have studied this, and they've come back with this idea that they believe there's one of two reasons for wearing a, a garment that's uncomfortable. One is that they are in contempt for the things of this earth, that the prophets are wearing something to show a disdain for what man has embraced. In other words, everything on this earth, God provides things for us, clothing, house, car, but keep a very light hand on it. Amen? Because you're not of this world. Don't hold it, don't, like a baby, okay? A newborn baby, a daddy's in that room and his wife just delivered a baby and that doctor takes that little baby and lifts it up. They snip the umbilical cord and he turns to you and he puts that baby out to you and you go like this. As a, you, you take it and you pull it in and you hold it as close to you as you possibly can. Okay? Okay. When God allows you to have things in the world, he gives it to you, car, house, resources, and he wants you to do this. Take it and keep it here. Do not let it come in here. Okay? This is for the Lord. The Lord gets the best of who I am. And I wouldn't have these things out here if it were not for him. And so I'm not going to let anything hinder the worship of God. And I'm certainly not going to take things and bring them in and worship them. A lot of Christians struggle there. We can all struggle there. You know how I know that? Because I find myself struggling there. Material things, you get real excited. You get a new vehicle, man, and you are you're worshiping that thing early on. You know how I know that? Because when you pull into the Kmart parking lot or the Walmart, you park that thing all the way out by State Road 60 <laughs> under a shade tree. You're going out of your way for your vehicle. Do you go out of the way for the Lord? These are the things that we've got to ponder here. This is what the Spirit of God is trying to say to us tonight. The other, the other possibility of why they were wore uh, these, these difficult clothings was because 
These are garments associated, as I said earlier, with repentance because they indicate sorrow for the sins of the people. They would, when they would come into a... Remember the, the man who was a sinner? He was a tax collector. And Jesus talked about the guy who came into the temple to pray and he was the Pharisee and he got real loud. And he's got his long cloak, his long coat on, beautiful coat, a robe. And he's praying out loud where everybody can hear him and he's talking about how good he is. And then Jesus said he overhears a, a man who's a tax collector. He's a sinner. And he beats his chest. One of the signs of sin and just a, an, a, the abhorrence of sin is to rip your clothes. And so the prophets wore clothes as a picture of disdain for sin and repentance. Repentance for sin. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky, these two witnesses. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now these two witnesses in Revelation come in the same type of ministry as Elijah, one of the prophets. In fact, they come in the same type of ministry of several prophets. They come in the same type of ministry as Moses. Did Moses not have plagues that God put in his hands to deliver to the Egyptians? And, and so they, they come in the same characteristics of some of these great men of God in the Old Testament. Um, and they have the power to shut the sky. Who was it that could shut the sky? Prayed for rain to cease. Elijah. How long did it cease? Yeah, three years. Okay. And then he prayed again and the rains fell. A cloud the size of a man's hand broke out on the sky and he took his long coat and he wrapped it up in his belt and he ran down and beat the chariot of Ahab down, down the hill. Um, so these men are coming in the same spirit or the same likeness as prophets. Okay. Uh, they, it says they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who did that? Moses. Moses. So there's good reason to believe that one of the witnesses will be Elijah. There are some who teach that this is, these two witnesses are a picture of the church. I disagree, and I'll tell you why. There's way too much distinct detail about the witnesses to represent the church, okay? Um, interestingly enough, we don't know for sure, but uh, we really don't know who the two witnesses are. We can, we can guess. The best thing we can do is guess. Um, the identity of the other witness is not as, is not as certain as possibly, as possibly Elijah. There are different Bible teachers who take the different views, and there are some who are fairly certain in their minds that it's going to be Moses who represents the law and Elijah who represents the prophets. Well, the fact that Moses appeared with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration brings a little bit of credence to what they're saying. I mean, it's possible that that's true. It could be Moses and Elijah, but nobody knows for sure. Okay. Um, 
Others believe it will be Enoch. Remember Enoch in uh, Genesis? And he did these mighty things for God. And God was so, so thrilled or moved by Enoch's obedience and dedication that he called him up into heaven. The man never died. And, you know, the scripture says that it's appointed unto every man to die. And uh, many people take that uh, as literal. That it, it, that's the absolute truth. You have to die. Well, uh, no. Um, it can also be that it's, it's a principle, a general principle. If you believe in a, in a rapture, the church doesn't die. So it just blows that up, okay? Um, but others think that it might be Enoch, okay? Who, who, who Enoch and Elijah, or Enoch and Moses. Most people think one of them is Elijah, but we don't know for sure, okay? Uh, so there's a good argument for either Enoch, Moses, or Elijah. Uh, I don't really know, and I really don't care. Quite honestly, it doesn't matter. Okay? If God wants to be clear because it matters, He'll be clear. In this case, He's not clear. So you don't put stock in something that God's not putting stock in. Put it where God puts it. Okay? Many interpreters see the two witnesses as symbolic of the entire church, as I said, in the tribulation period or as a symbol of law and the prophets, but uh, again, specific details are given, and I don't think you can, you can somehow uh, make that kind of a symb symbolic interpretation. The most plain and straightforward interpretation sees them as two real individuals, not symbolic representations. But again, who knows who? Generally, Elijah, Moses, Enoch rise as the most plausible candidates. It's possible that it's just two believers ministering in the spirit of those men, of the prophets, who aren't even mentioned in the Bible. They're just people that are living in that day, and God raises them up in the spirit of Elijah. Who knows? We don't know. Okay? Those who think one of them is Enoch believe because he, carried up to, he was carried up to heaven by God. But again, uh, uh, I don't take it that he has to die, that he has to come back and die. I used to think that, but I don't any, any longer. I think that's a general principle. We're taking Hebrews, I forget what verse that is in Hebrews. I think we're taking it beyond what, it, what is meant there. Okay? Now, let me just talk to you for a second about, just, let's just go a little further with this and talk a little more about uh, Moses as one of the witnesses. The reasons why they would say Moses is a witness is because his ministry seems like one of the witnesses who does the plagues, right? God seems to have a special purpose for the body of Moses that Satan wanted to defeat in Jude chapter nine or Jude uh, verse nine. But when the archangel Michael, this is what it says in Jude nine, when the when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." So, Michael, the archangel was simply telling, the whole idea there is that um, we don't speak on our own ever. Not even Michael the archangel speaks on his own. Uh, he, he speaks through the Lord only, only what the Lord says. And so he says, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not going to rebuke you because I don't have that power to do that. Um, but the Lord does. Now, here's the story behind that. Moses died on Mount Nebo in Moab without judgment. 
but said, but what's interesting is he never entered the promised land. Moses never was able to go into the promised land. It would likely be that this confrontation between Michael and Satan uh, is some kind of a diabolical plan that Satan had to literally do something with the bones of Moses. And God sent the archangel to go and make sure nothing happened to the body of Moses. That's all I know. I mean, I've studied, I've studied, I've looked at theologians and what they're saying. Again, no one knows for sure. There's not enough evidence in Scripture to tell us the whole picture. But we do know that Satan was at play trying to do something with the body or the bones of Moses. Okay? And, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, that, 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 that account was recorded in the Pseudopigrapha, which is a Jewish writing or writings that are ascribed to various biblical patriarchs and prophets, but composed by the Jews. And they, they were composed about 200 years uh, within the birth of Christ. So there are older documents that have this information, and it made it, it, made it into the Bible. The enemies of Moses were destroyed by fire. Okay, these guys are going to walk in fire. They can actually, fire comes out of their mouth and destroys people. That, Moses did that, okay? And they were trying to get up to him, and he, he prayed that fire would come down, and it did. Struck him. Uh, <laughs> that's in Numbers 16.35. Moses had a unique conference with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and, and so there's, there's a lot of things that put this in Moses in his hands, that he's one of the witnesses. Some believe the two witnesses must be Enoch and Elijah, but because neither of them died natural death. Again, I'm not going to go back over that, but I don't think that that's to be taken literally. It's Hebrews 9.27, and it says it is appointed for men to die once. Uh, if that's the case, then what do you do with Lazarus? He died twice. You, you can't take it literal once. It's, it's a general um, principle in the Scripture. But I think there are exceptions throughout the Scripture that speak to that. And by the way, if you believe in the rapture of the church, then you really have a problem with dying once because they don't, those who are raptured don't die. Okay? Now let's move on. Verse 7, And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Okay, let's stop for a second. Just remember, when they have finished their testimony. So these two witnesses are going to be on the earth, and they are going to witness for 1,260 days. Nothing will interfere with the witness. And then when they've completed their days, 1,260 days, without interruption, then the Lord allows them to be overpowered by the enemy, and they die on the street. Look what it says about that. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now that's very confusing on the surface value of reading that text. For three and a half days, some people, uh, some from the people, uh, I'm sorry, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies 
and refused to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the, on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So after the two witnesses finish the work that God's given them, He will allow the beast to overtake them. Okay, The beast comes out of the bottomless pit. That's first recorded in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. Most likely, it's Satan himself. But not until their ministry is completed. And the enemy does not have the power to thwart God's plans, right? In fact, when it looks like he's winning, it's because God's letting him on the surface look like he's winning. He thought he won when he put Christ on the cross, but ended up being duped by the Father. And God's always going to win the battle. Amen? Amen? The same holds true for us. We cannot take off or be taken from this earth until we finish our testimony for the Lord. Okay? Don't worry. You're going to be here as long as God wants you to be here. Amen. He already knows the number of hairs on your head. He knew the beginning, the end, before you ever existed. He knows everything there is to know about you, past, present, future, before you ever lived the first day of your life. All the days were already written. Amen. So you don't have to fear COVID in that respect. I mean that. I mean that. I, I lied in that hospital bed that first night, and, and I was in a difficult place with breathing. But I laid there, and I'm telling you, that window was right there. I was laying in the recliner. I don't want to get in the bed. I'm laying in a recliner, and I'm looking out the window at night, and the rain's just pelting that window. Man, I had the sweetest fellowship with God, and I just had this instant surge of absolute confidence that God is not finished with me here yet. And, and so I put that in the rearview mirror. Now it's, let's go forward. Now, I'm not saying that in moments before that, uh, going to the hospital, that it wasn't shaky. Uh, your flesh is always going to bring fear to you, is it not? How many of you have never been afraid of anything? We've all been there, right? We get a, Hey, our flesh lies to us all the time. Your emotions are always lying to you. When you go to a, sitting in your living room there, you know, and the lights are all out, and you got the TV on, and you're watching a scary movie, which I don't like scary movies, thrillers, I don't watch any of that stuff. My wife loves it. And when she puts that on, she knows if she wants to clear the room, just put on a thriller. And I'm out of the room, man. I don't care about that stuff. But you sit in that room, and it comes to a part in that movie where the music either goes silent or it starts building, and all of a sudden they zoom in on the face of the person, and you're thinking, what's right behind them? All of a sudden, you're sitting in your home on your cushioned couch in your air conditioning with the doors locked, and you are scared. You're sweating on your palms. If somebody walked up, I was at a, when I was my, a freshman in college, I had a friend, Rick Melton, who had a date and he took his date to Indianapolis to go to a movie. And I had a date, and I went, I didn't know he was going to that movie. I took a date to Indianapolis, and I saw him three rows down. And it was a scary movie, okay? That's what you do. You take a girl to a scary movie, and you know what I'm talking about, okay? So, so it gets to one of those parts, and man, I got up out of my chair and just walked forward. 
and I went, Germany! <laughs> I, Rick, he must have come that high off the chair. <laughs> Scared him to death. We laughed about that for years to come. It's a lie. Those emotions are lying. What's the truth? You ain't going nowhere until God says it's time. And if it's your time, you want to go. When you get there, believe me, you're not going to go, oh, man, what am I doing here? Why didn't you let me go longer? Nobody in heaven says that. You don't see John in these visions from heaven ever looking at some people going, Lord, oh, why? Why did you bring me here? I, I was in the middle of a, my daughter's wedding. Oh, Lord, I, I just, this weekend I was going to graduate from, with my doctorate. Why did you bring me up? Nobody. See, we're the ones on this side that are always saying, oh, I wish they hadn't gone. I didn't get to see them get married. I didn't get to see them have children. And that's more about us. I can promise you, in heaven, they ain't thinking that way. If they're a Christian, they're with the Lord. That's the best you can ever get, right? So these men, they're doing the Lord's work, and they know that their days are numbered. But for 1,260 days, three and a half years, they proclaim the message of God without compromise. And when somebody rises up and speaks against them, the fire comes out and strikes it. Just toast that person. Well, that's power now. Plagues, whenever they need it, they can put a plague on, on the land. Wow. Makes you want to be one of the two witnesses, doesn't it? Lord, let me be there. Uh, but they're not worried about death. And guess what? Death came. But God's not done. For three and a half days, some of the people, tribes, languages, nations, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So after their work is complete, God then allows the beast to overcome them, all part of God's plan. And this passage illustrates the difference between being a witness and giving testimony. These men were called witnesses because that's who they are. By the way, you are called a witness. Every true Christian is a witness for Jesus Christ. That's not optional. Witnessing is not a gift. Witnessing is who you are. It's your personhood in Christ. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and not be a witness. But now, giving testimony is not who you are. That's what you do as a witness. A witness is who you are. Giving testimony is what you do. See the difference? God wants both from us. He wants you to accept that you're a witness and to be a witness, Martus, to be ready at any moment as you share the gospel to be persecuted to death. Not that every Christian is going to die a persecuted death, but you are ready. You accept that as a Christian. And then secondly, to open your mouth by the power of the Holy Spirit, share your testimony. What, what is a testimony? 
It's you telling others what Jesus did in you. That's all it is. It's bragging on Jesus. It's, it's sharing how the gospel of Christ has transformed you. A witness and testifying about the Lord is not you bragging on the sins you used to commit. Some Christians share their testimony and it's more about the sin life than it is the Christ life. It's ridiculous. No, no. You mentioned that you were a sinner. You don't have to go into gory detail of your sins. Mention you were a sinner, you were lost. You want, you want to, here's what you talk about on the, first, on the front side of, of salvation. You talk about the fact that within you there was nothing good. That you were lost for all eternity in your sinfulness. Not to mention what sins they are. Just the fact that I am a depraved man and I needed salvation and God provided it through Jesus Christ. And I didn't do anything to deserve it or to earn it or merit it. God, by grace, reached out to me and He saved me. All I could do was surrender my pitiful, miserable life to the one and true living God. And now you tell the rest of your story, and that is what Christ has done since He filled you up. Now that I'm saved, here's what a transformed life looks like. And by the way, I'm still in the process of being transformed. I always will be. There is not a single Christian who the Holy Spirit functions in doesn't still struggle, doesn't still mess up, okay? But we are committed to being conformed to the image of Jesus every day. And so what I look like today in three years I ought to look back and go, man, I thank God I'm not what I used to be. I've, pro I've progressed. I'm, I'm being more conformed to Christ every year. Amen? Amen? So, being a Christian in your testimony, when you get to the good stuff, you're not bragging on what you, who you are today. You're still a work in progress. You're bragging on the fact that Jesus loved you when you were unlovable. He saved you, and now he's actually changing me. He's transforming me. And this is where I've changed. And by the way, if those people that you're talking to know you at all, they already see the change. You shouldn't have to tell them. But the fact is, you're bragging on Jesus. The whole thing is about Christ. That's what a testimony is. These men are going to be testifying about the gospel of God and what God's gospel can do in the, in the people that they're trying to reach. And here's the, this is bizarre to me. The people that are hearing it are freaking out mad. We don't want to hear that message. We don't want God to be our God. Uh, well, they don't want anybody to be their God. It's interesting. The world is perfectly fine with religions. Because in religion, you get that's about you. You make your religion work. It's like working the program as an alcoholic, okay? Religion is the same thing. It's you working it, you making it work. To be a Christian is to surrender wholly to God. The world doesn't want that. <laughs> That's not what they're into. So, uh, these dead bodies are going to lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This would have to mean that they are killed in the city of Jerusalem 
which is described in, listen, in these three illustrative terms. Sodom speaks of what? Immorality, right? Immorality. Egypt speaks of what? Oppression and slavery. The great city is a term often applied to Babylon, okay? The headquarters of Antichrist, Revelation 16, 19, Revelation 17, 18, Revelation 18, 10, Revelation 18, 16, 18, 18, 18, 19, 18, 21. All about the great Babylon, the headquarters of Antichrist. If during the three and a half years, Jerusalem's leadership colludes, comes into covenant with the Antichrist, you better believe it's easy to see how these titles fit Jerusalem. And it does say where Christ died. There's no question. We know where he died, right? Jerusalem. So that's what he's meaning here. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at the dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Uh, the earth saw the two witnesses being killed and their response to that. And when I say the earth saw, the world saw, I mean, it's going to be televised, broadcast, live. The whole world, because of uh, the, the mass media, because of major networks and cable networks, they will follow for 1,260 days these men who are performing these incredible signs, striking people down with fire, and nobody can do anything about it. They're going to be following that for three and a half years, and then all of a sudden, the beast strikes them dead and all of a sudden the whole earth rejoices throws parties because the two witnesses who proclaim the gospel of God have died you think about that hmm uh, it's probably going to be a live feed you know in Jerusalem that you're going to see it you're going to see those bodies laying in the street for three and a half or three days, three and a half days. You're going to see it. Remember when we saw that with uh, Black Hawk down and they took the, the bodies of, of our servicemen and one of them, they, were, they had tied ropes around his body. He was dead, dragging him through Somalia. And the people of the little village there just shouting, Woo! We saw that on TV. You're going to see that again with the two witnesses. The earth is going to be rejoicing over it, so excited about it. Uh, the, the, see, the, the earth can't stand to hear the message of the gospel. Amen. You say, well, how do you know that? Jesus said it. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Well, why did they hate him? Well, Jesus said because I declare that their deeds are evil. The earth doesn't want, the world does not want to hear about their sin life. Amen. And that's what these witnesses are doing, is by proclaiming the gospel of God, they're proclaiming righteousness. And that's the opposite of what these people want. These men are standing out there like lights, high beam lights, shining on the sins of mankind. And mankind wants darkness. So they want these men killed. They want them taken down. And then verse 11, 
But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Wow. And they stood up on their feet. Can you see these three bodies, three days old, laying out there in the hot sun? Beat up, you know, smelling a little bit of stink coming on them now. And they're out there in the street, and they're still partying, and the, all the news media, all the liberal media is out there showing it every day, man. They're just, woo! And all of a sudden, it's like these guys laying there, and all of a sudden, look at this. Whoop! God just raises them up, breathes life into them. Man, oh man, oh man. And they stood up on their feet, and here it is. The people who were shouting and rejoicing over the dead bodies, and great fear fell on those who saw them. You better believe it. <laughs> to see men come back from the dead after three and a half days. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. God was not speaking to the world. He was speaking to the two faithful witnesses. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. They, these folks didn't just see these men rise from the dead after three days. Now they see them go up, lifted up, ascend in a cloud. Who else did that? Our Savior, Jesus, at His ascension. Again, another symbolic picture for the world to see. This is God we're talking about. All those Bible stories that we learned as children in church, and now we're sowing our oats and living for ourselves and living for Satan, and then we see these biblical-sized supernatural events happening. How do, how do you deny that? And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. Okay, it's still not done. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So there are some who are going to break out in, in rejoicing for God. But that doesn't mean they're saved. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So just in quick review, looking here at this verses 11 through 14 or 13, can you imagine the horror on the faces of the people who are rejoicing when these bodies come up, right? And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. God makes it clear to the earth that in all of human, its human depravity, these two men aren't, this earth is not worthy of them. They need to be in heaven. That's where they belong. There are times you go out and minister and you get such a rejection from man, from this world, mocking you, laughing at you. Listen to me. This earth is not worthy of you. Your home is in heaven. Stop trying to make the world fit. It doesn't fit you. God says, come up here. And if that's not enough, and at the hour there was a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. So these events moved some to give glory to God, but it remains to be seen whether they expressed true repentance. So we don't know that they got saved. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world. Oh, man, this is incredible. The whole Bible is waiting for this moment. Of the seventh angel blew his trumpet, that's the seventh trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven 
or voices actually, saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. <laughs> when does this happen? When does this exclamation point of proclamation about God's kingdom coming forever and ever. When does it happen? Right after a terribly horrifying event. Two witnesses taken out. Three and a half days laying there dead in the street. A picture of humiliation. That's what the world is saying to Christians on the earth as they show these men laying on the street trying to humiliate Christians, trying to intimidate them. And on the heel of that, God makes the proclamation of all proclamations. <laughs> I love it. In the ancient Greek grammar, the verb tense of has become indicates an absolute certainty, even though it has not yet happened. <laughs> so what's happening here is the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. He said that, but nothing had changed yet. Christ didn't return yet. It's still future tense when He says it, but He doesn't say it in future tense. Christ has not yet come back and set up His kingdom, but it's already being stated, and they're stating it with absolute assurance that it's going to happen. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. I love it. And he shall reign forever and ever. How is it possible that there could be this level of excitement and joy when the king has not yet come? Because they know that their king is in total control. And if he makes the announcement that this earth and the kingdom of this world is now the kingdom of God, it's, it's done. That's better than taking it to the bank. Of course, that's not saying much these days. Verse 16, And 24 elders who sit on the, their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Again, they're saying, We believe it's certain that it's going to happen. These 24 elders are, are seated around the throne of God. They each have a little throne, a little throne in the presence of God in heaven, and yet they get out of their chairs and they fall prostrate before God. And they begin to worship God over the fact that He just proclaimed, the end has come and Christ has won. Amen. Hmm. Now look at verse 18. That's what's happening amongst the believers and the, the people of God. What's happening in the world after the proclamation? The nations raged. <laughs> but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. They became angry that God is coming to rule. That's not what the world wants. The world wants anything but the reign of God. In a parable Jesus talked about, a nobleman who, who announces to his, his, uh, his, his uh, delegates, I'm going to go to a faraway land 
and I'm going to take that land for my own, and I'm going to be the king. I'm going to make, set up my kingdom in that land. This is a parable that Jesus gave. And so he sends these men out to start setting up businesses in this new kingdom before he actually shows up and sits on the throne. And as they arrive, the people in that kingdom become enraged. We, here's what they say, okay, let me just give it to you. Uh, Luke 19, 14, it says that the citizens of that region, quote, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, what's interesting is that's Jesus speaking in a parable. Jesus is giving a foreknowledge of what's coming, that the world, when God makes the announcement, the proclamation of his coming, that the world doesn't want him to come and reign over them. See, again, belonging to a religion, that's fine, because we're in control of that religion. We do things to feel good about ourselves. Belonging to Christ and Christ, true Christianity, you're out of control. You have no control. Christ owns you. Amen. You live for Him now, and you love it. You take joy in knowing my life is God's life. Somebody assaults me. Somebody speaks negatively about me. You walk away saying, well, Lord, I guess I don't like you. You don't take it in on yourself unless, you're, unless what you believe is, is something you created. No, no. You're a Christian. You follow Christ. Therefore, if they hate you, they're really hating Christ. Amen? Amen? Verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Boy, God responds, doesn't he? Uh, by the way, the throne of God is the ark of his covenant. Back on the earth in the tabernacle, that's what was there the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a picture of God's presence, God's throne. It was, a, it was a throne. In heaven, it's not the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying literally the, the throne room of God, the throne of God. The Ark of the Covenant is simply a symbol of God's faithfulness in bestowing grace on His people and inflicting vengeance on those who are enemies of His people. Verse 19, the last part, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The great and awesome phenomenon at the opening of the temple and the revelation of the ark, the throne of God, show that the presence of the Lord is there. It is, it, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of God's manifested presence on Mount Sinai, is it not? And so the people would see the cloud roll in, the thunder, the lightning, and the Moses going up, and man, God's right there with him. Woo, we are going to be with the Lord in that. Praise God. That's exciting. Well, I think we finished that chapter, and we're going to go ahead and, and uh, come back next week, and we'll focus in on chapter 12. And it just gets better and better as we go through this. There's a reason why it says in Revelation, you're blessed if you read it. So those of you who are listening in, for watching us by live stream. Thank you for tuning in to us and hope that you'll show up Sunday morning. Join us as we worship the Lord together. We'll be in Matthew's gospel, finishing up chapter one and going into chapter two. All right. God bless each of you. Have a great evening.